This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour, Business Radio's mid-year real estate outlook. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, the Larry and Clara Silverstein Chair in Real Estate Development and Investment at NYU's Schack Institute of Real Estate. I'm also a proud alumnus of the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School, where I hold an adjunct faculty appointment in the Real Estate Department. First on today's program, underpinning commercial real estate investment, both domestically in the United States and abroad, sits an immense global network of capital flows. Despite a pullback in early 2019, according to global real estate services firm JLL, real estate markets around the world remain as dependent on cross-border investment as at any point since before the financial crisis. Here in the U.S., the demand for capital to support real estate investment and urban infrastructure remains exceptionally strong, drawing billions of dollars from Canada, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. At the same time, the United States remains one of the dominant players in cross-border capital for acquisitions in other parts of the world. Joining me today to talk about cross-border real estate investment and how the U.S. sits in the eyes of the global investment community is Maggie Coleman. Maggie is Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader on their International Capital Team for the Americas. Maggie, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, big picture. Uh, Over the course of this last cycle, how would you characterize the role of global capital flows and the way in which they've supported U.S. markets? You know, we've seen over uh, this past cycle the volume of – capital being allocated to real estate globally continue to tick up. We've also seen a number of markets, particularly throughout Asia, really start to open up to outbound capital um, and look to the U.S. as a first stop for, um, for investing outside of the region. And, you know, what that's done is it's, it's driven uh, the amount of liquidity available for real estate and has certainly uh, brought in a lot of new market entrants from uh, the regions that we hadn't seen um, buy in the U.S. previously. Now, when you mentioned that sort of you know, your real estate sort of has gotten a larger allocation over the course of this cycle, you know, not only on the residential side but the commercial side, you know, we weren't the strongest players in the downturn. Um, why is it that you know you've seen this change or this shift or, or reweighting of global capital flows in a way that's favored real estate? I think it's primarily being driven by diversification. You have, you know, notably the pension funds as well as some of the large uh, mega funds that have continued to raise capital. And, you know, as they've raised additional capital, um, the need to diversify has really pushed real estate in terms of um, the percentage of allocation uh, up every year. This past year, it's... um, believe real estate's uh, north of 10.2%, which is the highest we've seen it in terms of percentage of allocation. And um, we would expect next year for it to continue to increase. We have um, a number of um, pension funds that we're tracking, for example, in uh, Asia that um, have not yet even allocated a capital to direct real estate investments. They've started off with an indirect uh, program. And so, 
again, as we see more capital being allocated, as we see pension funds and funds move from indirect to direct strategies, we expect all of this to have a a very strong impact on uh, the commercial real estate sector, both in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned pension funds, and certainly I can give an example like the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, a very active player in the United States. Mm-hmm. Are we really talking about money that's being driven by or, or, or coming from global uh, you know, pension funds in other parts of the world? You know, I know there are programs like EB-5 that give opportunities to relatively small individual investors to deploy capital uh, in real estate in the United States. How much of this is a large institution story like a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund? versus your relatively smaller entities? That's a great question. You know, it is a, when you look at the volume of inbound capital from quote-unquote offshore, which includes Canada, the bulk of capital coming into the U.S. is, in fact, Canadian. And it is, in fact, being um, driven by the pension funds out of Canada. So So CPP, Ivanhoe, um, Omers, which has um, the entity Oxford, as you know, and that they have been some of the largest investors in the U.S. from foreign capital. But we're also talking about pension funds that, again, have not yet outlined or articulated a direct investment strategies that we expect to do so. When you look at, for example, um, GPIF in Japan, you know that's an eight trillion dollar or so pension fund, and um, they've just now. Um, begun or commenced uh, a focus on real estate. They've hired uh, one or two asset managers to help with their strategy, and they are going to start with an indirect. We're closely monitoring how that indirect strategy plays out because we do think, you know, they'll eventually move to a direct investment strategy similar to the Canadian uh, model. So it's you know, it is the tried and true pension funds that have been here operating for some time, but it, there is new capital that we're actually tracking um, and what we call pent up demand that we expect to, um, you know, uh, be uh, integrated into the, the real estate capital markets in the near term. When I'm looking at your list of the top 10 cross-border purchasers, do they, are the United States is at the top of the list, presumably buying assets in other parts of the world. You've got Singapore, Hong Kong, Germany, Canada, the UK, Japan. How much does this list change from one cycle to the next? Uh, you know, China, you know, mainland China is not on the list. Are, are there ups and downs here that are meaningful? Or is this, uh, you know, the, to your point about new sources of capital emerging, other parts of the world making allocations to real estate, you know, how does this list change over time? Well, certainly the U.S. is um, typically uh, the the dominant factor when it comes to cross-border capital. And what drives that is really the global mega funds that we, you know, talk about, um, which is, you know, the Blackstones, the LaSalle's, the um, Investcos of the world, so firms that are located in the U.S. but certainly have globally operating platforms. So you know that's one of the just one of the reasons why you see the U.S. as um, in that top tier um, in a in a kind of profound profound way. Um, the Singaporean um, outflows is really has been kind of the headline call it of the last eighteen to twenty four months. That is a area of very you know high concentration of capital that in the last two years or so has 
really just opened up to the rest of the world. And we saw um, that capital flow from Singapore in a very real way into the U.S. with um, acquisitions by groups like Maple Tree and Capital Land for large portfolios, uh, multifamily, uh, industrial, as well as um, office. And so, so that capital has been a new emergent in terms of the global uh, cross-border story. We're tracking of the you know, Singaporean groups call it the top 10 that we spend a lot of time with. It's something like $900 billion in AUM. So, you know, meaningful capital that they're going to be deploying outside of the U.S. And then we certainly see um, factors that will take, you know, capital out of the cross-border, um, out of the cross-border flows. So, you know, for example, uh, recently we've seen a muted um, kind of uh, flow from China uh, due to their focus to um, have their capital kind of remain within China and as part of the one road, one belt um, strategy. So it's, um, you know, we certainly see investors from uh, each of the regions moving in and out of that top 10 list, but it's primarily consistent. You know, there is you know, the German capital, uh, German closed-end funds have been um, investors outside of their markets for, for quite some time. Um, and, you know, we certainly see um, other European um, countries that have been uh, very active, um, you know, float in and out of that top 10 list. If you're just joining us, I'm Sam Chandon, and you're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour here on Sirius XM 132. It's our mid-year real estate outlook on business radio. Uh, my guest uh, for this half of the program is Maggie Coleman, Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader of their international capital team for the Americas. We're talking about global cross-border capital flows into real estate markets. You, know, you mentioned um, you know, Chinese investors and you know, capital flows from China having uh, abated somewhat over the last couple of years, we had a really active spate of hotel uh, acquisitions here in New York City. Um, d- d- the large institutions coming from abroad, are there preferred property types? Do we see them overweighting to hotels, big office buildings? Uh, are, are they shy of retail in the way that you know, many U.S. investors are? What, what, is, what does that look like? It's an interesting question because you see a broadening of appetite in the U.S by foreign investors across property types. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, where we are in an elongated cycle. Uh, So whereas many investors early in the cycle, even last cycle, were primarily focused on, you know, single asset office or hotel acquisitions from um, international investors, we're seeing now capital from both Europe and Asia focus on, you know, more defensive strategies in the U.S., so multifamily and industrial. We've been spending a lot of time with investors uh, who are looking to access the U.S. multifamily and industrial market uh, with scale. And how do they go about implementing strategies to do that in, um, you know, um, a property type that's been somewhat fragmented and and largely, um, you know, ownership is still quite um, has a heavy concentration of private owners in those in those markets in those sectors. So multifamily and industrial certainly um, is where we're seeing expansion. Uh, we're also seeing a growing appetite for the alternatives, and what's driving that has been uh, the quest for yield. So identifying opportunities in data center, 
student housing and medical office has been uh, ticking up on the radar of many of our offshore investors who we work with. And then the other trend I would say that is really interesting about this cycle is we're seeing a lot of really large-scale portfolios and entity-level transactions. So, um, you know, we mentioned the Canadians earlier. The Canadians have been executing large portfolios um, for some time, but you know the groups that we've seen um, as buyers of scale include Maple Tree now um, out of Singapore, Ascendus um, out of Singapore, Capital Land out of Singapore, and so um, as we've seen them, um, those groups perform and execute those large-scale deals, we're starting to hear more of an interest in finding those opportunities from other buyers throughout Asia. Um, And then obviously last year, what drove a lot of the volume was the entity-level transaction. So you had um, the uh, Brookfield acquisition of GGP, you had the Unibal Rodamco acquisition of Westfield, and that really drove a lot of volume and again, um, pushed kind of cross-border capital um, in very meaningful ways into the U.S. market. Yeah, and just clarify for invest sure. uh, for for our listeners, what do you mean by the entity level transaction? So those were um, not um, real estate asset acquisitions; those were company purchases. So you know, Brookfield bought GGP as a company versus you know going in and buying individual you know portfolios or real estate. Right now, so uh, the entire uh, entity. Another interesting aspect of this, I think early in the cycle, we saw a lot of capital, whether domestic or international, really focus on just a handful of cities. You know, Now we're going back 10 years. Uh, has there been, uh, in the same way that we've seen for domestic capital, a uh, dispersion of uh, investment where you know, sec- what we might sort of think of as secondary or tertiary markets or emerging you know, smaller markets in the southeast of the United States? You know, are they getting their share of foreign capital as well? These would obviously be you know, sm- relatively smaller transactions, but we, you know, we've got listeners uh, in markets all around the country. Uh, are, are they going to see their share? They are. And we're every trip that I take to, um, in particular, to Tokyo and to Singapore and to Seoul, we're educating investors on secondary markets. And a lot of that's being driven by, again, where can you identify markets that have um, very strong supply-demand dynamics? Very compelling stories around, you know, a millennial population, economic diversification, growing tech sectors, strong, um, you know, employment base. Those are all secondary markets that those are hallmarks of secondary markets that foreign capital is now paying attention to and bidding and buying in a very real way. Uh, we've brought a number of investors into deals in Chicago um, and Seattle most recently and have been working with a number of investors as they are broadening their uh, mandates locally with their local investor uh, committees to inc- include markets like Dallas and Denver and Austin, you know, Charlotte. Um, Philadelphia has had a resurgence in, in interest. Houston's had a resurgence in interest. And so we're seeing it across probably 12 to 15 secondary markets um, that investors are really starting to, um, I would say, not pass because of the market and are really starting to try and understand the dynamics um, and the leasing dynamics in particular behind those markets. Um, In addition, I think, to um, just identifying the right secondary markets you know, investors are looking for specific kinds of asset in those assets in those markets because they're not as familiar with them. So 
So, for example, when, um, you know, Korean investors are looking at, you know, non-gateway markets, they're going to look for investment-grade tenancy with some term, most likely single-tenant um, assets to pursue. Um, and, you know, the other factor that I would say we've been noting as, you know, again, going back to that trend of portfolio acquisitions that many of these groups are pursuing, given the scale, they're just running into these secondary markets because a lot of these assets, you know, are not in gateway markets in, in many of these portfolios that um, investors are underwriting and or pursuing. So, you know, it's been um, a really interesting, call it, three to four years of seeing foreign capital really diversify outside of the gateways. Yeah. So you mentioned Philadelphia, obviously that's a city of special importance for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I own, let's say I own a relatively small or medium sized apartment building or, or retail complex in Philadelphia. You know, I, I want to position my asset. I'm thinking about selling it. If I, if I want to be a contender or if I want to attract foreign capital as a potential buyer for my asset, um, do I do anything differently or do I just focus on the fundamentals, make sure I've got strong leases in place? Um, and the, you know, and then you know, when I'm bringing it to market or, or is there, are there particular property characteristics that a foreign investor might be looking for that I should be mindful of? You know, that really is driven. The, the latter part of your question, if there are property characteristics, it's really driven by the regions and, and where these investors are located. And a lot of that is being driven by the domestic investors there. So, for example, I gave you the kind of what is Korean capital looking for? You know, you can say the same about many of the Middle Eastern syndicators who are um, looking at secondary markets. They'll need, you know, a minimum yield. They'll need um, a minimum lease term and specific, you know, metrics around um, the property that would deem it, you know, of interest. So, you know, it's the property characteristics are really, um, I think, um, driven by where the investors are located. And that's, you know, it's kind of a generalization, but it's, it's quite true in many instances. Um, but how you position your city or your location, you know, a lot of it is, again, focusing on the rent growth, the job growth, and really strong supply-demand dynamics. Um, that's really where we're seeing, you know, investors spend time to understand and, and really um, look at assets that have very positive stories from that perspective. We spend a lot of time in Chicago as well. And I think Chicago is a market that, you know, has had a languishing kind of um, reputation of having too much supply. And it couldn't be further from the truth when you really drill down and look at the metrics and that there was very little supply delivered after the financial um, you know, financial crisis. And because of its economic diversity, it's got, you know, influx of um, employment, an influx of employment base moving in from the suburbs. It's really quite a compelling um, market right now that's demonstrating rent growth. So it's, it's really about positioning, I think, your market from that perspective. If you're just joining us, I'm Sam Chandon, and you're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour here on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. It's our mid-year real estate outlook. My guest is Maggie Coleman, Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader of their International Capital Markets Team for the Americas. We're talking about global cross-border capital flows. Uh, Maggie, you'd mentioned that um, you know some of the strategies that are coming back into vogue or, or that are uh, emerging right now are really defensive. 
expensive ones. And you know, you mentioned multifamily, industrial. Is that a reflection of where people see the United States or where they see us globally in terms of the longevity of this cycle? Or are there other drivers there? I would say it's, it's a little bit of both. You know, I think investors are feeling that we are long in a cycle. I think I'm going to say, don't quote me on this, even though we're live. <laughs> <laughs> I think July marks, the, you know, this for the U.S. being the longest, you know, cycle That's right. um, in history. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's not necessarily a sense that, you know, underwriting has gotten overly aggressive or lending standards have you know, shifted dramatically. There's still a tremendous amount of liquidity, as we talked about early on, with the amount of capital being allocated, the you know, amount of dry powder that still has yet to be deployed. So there's still a tremendous amount of liquidity. But I do think investors are seeing, you know, a move to those defensive strategies that have had, you know, relatively stable returns in the long term. You know, when you look at multifamily, I think it's, you know, had the most stable returns for investors across property types. Um, so I think that there's a, a focus from that perspective. I think there's also just a growing familiarity with the multifamily sector. It's not a, you know, multifamily as an asset type doesn't exist in every market. So just by, I think, investors becoming more educated on, you know, what multifamily is in the U.S., the fact that there is a, you know, a limited supply, um, even with the amount of supply that's been added in, in the past year. I think it was something over 300,000, you know, units delivered last year and we're still undersupplied. Um, the story of workforce housing is resonating and the uh, understanding that that sector of the market, you know, is, is very difficult given where construction costs are to, to build. And so, you know, all of these factors that support a very strong multifamily um, market in the U.S. in the long term are starting to resonate. I think um, you are also seeing multifamily emerge as an asset class, as an asset class in Europe, you know, and in, in, in the U.K., in the PRS uh, sector. And so I think multifamily in general is just, you know, as a People are becoming more educated and people are seeing a need for that asset class in the long term. Industrial, I think, is, you know, certainly become a lot more favored because of the entire e-commerce story. You know, when we're talking to investors about industrial, a lot of it is that urban infill, logistic distribution space. Um, a lot of it is single tenant. Um, so that's, you know, I think the industrial side of things, it's it's just, I think, become a, you know, education around what the e-commerce sector is doing in terms of driving uh, that particular um, part of the market. Now, you, you mentioned stability a couple of times. Um, we're obviously in a complex geopolitical environment um, with you know, varying perceptions uh, with regard to you know, the United States and other parts of the world. Um, how, how are foreign investors internalizing that? Are, are, are you know, some, of what's, some of what we see going on in the political landscape, is it impacting how people are thinking about the investment opportunity in the United States? You know, it's really interesting. When we meet with investors, they still, you know, they're making their decisions, not really based on the geopolitical, although it's always a topic, you know, people want to talk about it. But they're, you know, the U.S. market is still viewed as, you know, a safe haven for capital. It's still viewed as the most liquid market in the world. Um, and so I, I think that's really what is driving decisions um, for, you know, allocating capital um, in, in, in various markets. You know, what has, for instance, impacted um, 
the ability of capital to get deployed in the U.S. is not really that geopolitical, but it's like hedging costs, right? So you had, you know, you had a dramatic increase in hedging costs by both the German, um, by both Germans as well as Koreans. And so that was a real challenge in the last 18 to 24 months for, um, you know, investors out of those markets to be able to um, pursue core office transactions, for example. And so that drove you know, for, from a, for the Koreans, for example, that capital for chasing equity shifted from the U.S. to Europe. And so we saw a very real movement in capital flow from Koreans, from the U.S. equity markets into um, European, um, into the Western European and now Central European. Um, and that's because hedging costs for um, many of the Korean groups was something, you know, north of 250 basis points. Uh, some of the German funds were underwriting them almost 300 basis points. Um, if not more. So that really was what was impacting a lot of the investment decisions um, as opposed to kind of the geopolitical situation. But it is, you know, it is certainly a topic. And, you know, it's it's funny. I was, you know, being here in London, we've been talking a lot about Brexit. And you do start to think, well, uncertainty has now been around for a while and it's kind of the new normal. And so you're still seeing you know, robust demand and, and uh, again, a significant amount of liquidity in this period, in this long period of uncertainty, which is kind of the new normal. So um, I, I really think it's still based on the fundamentals in terms of what's driving decisions. Sure. So just, you know, this may be part of the answer to my last question for you. We have just a moment left. Uh, you mentioned that you're in London. Uh, London in the first quarter of 2019 was the largest recipient of cross-border investment in the world. Uh, given the degree of uncertainty, uh, you know, in uh, in the UK right now, you know, that, that catches me a little bit off guard. But is, is it safe to say that, uh, you know, other factors are, are, you know, are at play here? London clearly remains an extraordinarily attractive market for investors. It does. And it's, I think it's investors who are looking at it from a long-term perspective. So, you know, again, I think the, the, the uncertainty around Brexit um, certainly drives headlines. And, um, you know, I think initially created some, um, you know, abatement or some, some concerns in the market. But I think, yes, it's, it's London is, by far the, the, the largest recipient of, of cross-border capital. I think, you know, it's, I was having a conversation with a colleague and they were saying, you know, domestically you've seen an increase in private capital looking to transact in London because they think it's, they think it's an opportunity. You know, they're long-term holders. So, you know, they've seen an uptick in capital coming out of the private sector pursuing real estate. That's, you know, potentially supplementing some of the institutional capital that's maybe, you know, moving a bit slower because of the uncertainty. So, um, you know, it's not a surprise that London remains the largest recipient. Um, it's it's always it's been a uh, market that Asian capital has, you know, been heavily focused on. Capital out of Hong Kong um, has been heavily focused on um, London. So we expect it to continue to be, you know, the top or if not one of the top markets for um, offshore groups. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me on the program. It's been a very much my pleasure, Sam, and um, look forward to uh, continuing the discourse over the uh, upcoming months. That was Maggie Coleman, Managing Director at JLL and Senior Leader of their International Capital Markets Team for the Americas. 
We need to take a quick break, but stay with us. In just a few minutes, I'll be talking with PwC's Mitch Rochelle, co-chairman of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, arguably the world's most widely read annual take on global real estate markets. You're listening to a special edition of the Real Estate Hour. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 